All right, if you want to make your way back to your seat, we've got a lot to, uh, to get covered this morning, so we better jump in. <clears throat> if you're new with us this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we're certainly glad that you've joined us here this morning. Um, before we dig into our text, I just want to give some fairly exciting news. As many of you know, uh, we've been blessed over the past few years with the Ahuka family being part of our church family. And if you were at the annual general meeting last week, uh, one of the exciting updates we gave is that Kinyanga, uh, one of their sons, one of Bahati and Gaston's sons, his spouse, Pamela, is still in Burundi, as are many of the other spouses, but things were falling into place this year and it looked like she was going to be able to come. And I was speaking with Kinyanga yesterday, and he is expecting her in Fredericton on Thursday. Woo! I feel like we should get Joel back up and we should just start worshiping again. Next week. Next week. <clears throat> so... Talk about husbands and wives is a good transition because today we're digging into Romans 7, which is all about the Christian and the law. So, beginning in the new year, we started a new series in Romans and we've been working our way rather quickly through it. And this morning uh, we come to Romans 7, and just before we dig into it just to say off right off the bat Romans 7 is hard and it's complicated at times and it's confusing at other times and so we'll pray and we'll read it slowly and we'll trust that God's gonna speak to us through it this morning so a bit just for time's sake I have all the scripture in one but I think we'll just take it in chunks as we go through rather than read it through all together, okay? So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us this morning uh, through worship and through song, and we just praise your good name. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done and all that you're going to do in the future and in eternity ahead of us, but even in the rest of this day, we thank you for what you're going to do. And so we pray as we come to your word that your spirit would work through it, and we want to be changed by your word this morning. So we pray for all people in all different backgrounds and no matter where they are, we just pray, Father, that you would work through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's take, take the first chunk, uh, Romans, 1, Romans 7, 1 to 6, okay? Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not 
in the old way of the written code. So that's the first little chunk that we'll tackle, but before we start to break that down, uh, just to set the stage a bit, uh, in chapters 1 to 5, Paul has showed us rather clearly that justification is by faith, and in Romans 3.20, Paul made it clear the law cannot justify us. So the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, following the rules, uh, keeping the law, you cannot be made right with God. That's justification. Justification by following the, the law is impossible. It doesn't work. And if you've been with us for the series, we've, we've got that down, right? We're quick to forget, but we've really been hammering that home for the last few weeks. In chapter 5, Paul introduced this whole, de- whole idea of being united with Christ, that we were in Adam, now we're in Christ. And he ends chapter 5 with a pretty big statement concerning the law as well. He says in, in 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, these big statements and this clear teaching on justification by faith has caused some confusion. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you preach justification by faith truly, it will lead to misunderstanding. And so we see at the first of Romans 6, some of those misunderstandings starting to come up. And so the first charge against Paul in his preaching of justification by faith is the charge that says, so you're saying then, if I'm justified by faith and not by my works and not by my performance, then you're saying I can live however I want. You know, I sin as much as I want, I can just follow my heart and I can do what feels good and all is well, I'm under grace. And then he demolishes that notion in chapter 6. And Joe looked at that last week, helping us to see that how we as Christians relate to sin, that we're dead to it. That, that sin didn't die, but we've died to it. And we're no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. And then, while he's destroying that charge, in 6.14, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so all these sayings about law has brought another charge against Paul, and that's this, that, hey, you know, you can't say, you can't talk about the law that way. You can't dis- dismiss the law like that. If you toss the law aside, it's just going to incite people to live a sinful life. And that's the other charge that Paul addresses in chapter 7. So chapter 6, how do we relate to sin? Chapter 7, how do we now relate to law? And Paul's main purpose here in chapter 7, is to show us that the law cannot sanctify us. He showed us in Romans 3.20, the law cannot justify us. In Romans 7, he's saying the law cannot sanctify us. And I know that's a churchy word, and it sounds very churchy, and all the churchy things, but sanctification is a good word, okay? So sanctification means progressively becoming like Jesus. So we're justified, we're declared righteous, and then we're sanctified. We are becoming righteous. Sanctification is a daily process. Justification is a one-time event. Sanctification 
from the minute you become a Christian to the day you die or Jesus returns, sanctification is the process of you becoming more and more like Christ. So justification, Christian. Sanctification, Christ-like. Okay? So that's the, the difference there. And so Paul's aim in Romans 7 is to show us that that does not happen through the law. That the law does not sanctify. It cannot sanctify. Jesus can. The law does not sanctify. That's his whole point. And keeping that at the forefront really helps us as we go through chapter 7. So, that's the background. Now let's dive in, okay? So why can't the law sanctify us? And Paul begins to break it down for us. And in the section that we just read, he shows us that the law can't sanctify us because our relationship to the law has changed. So in those first six verses, Paul uses this kind of tale of two husbands, right? To show us what our relationship to the law was and what it now is if we're justified, if we're Christians. So he first paints the picture of a woman married to a man and how because she is bound to him, she is unable to live with another man because that would be adultery. But if that man were to die, then she is free. The marriage was till death do us part. Death did them part. And now she is free to marry another. And that's not a hard picture for us to grasp. But in the same way, he says we are married to the law. So we are married to the, the Mosaic law given by God to Moses, summarized neatly in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. We are bound to a list of commandments. Everyone who is not a Christian is bound to God's demands on the world. And Paul kind of personifies this list, so it can be a bit confusing. But he wants us to see that Mr. Law doesn't make a very good husband. So following being bound to the law, the law does not make a very good husband for a, first, for a few reasons. First, he's never wrong and he's always right. So maybe you know people who think they're always right or people who live like they're always right. Don't look beside you. <clears throat> and we often say, you know, I'm waiting to find Mr. Perfect or I'm waiting to find Mrs. Perfect Nobody wants to be married to Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, right? We, it can never happen because Mr. Perfect doesn't exist, but if he did, he would be super annoying to be married to, <laughs> right? You are always 100% on the losing end of the argument because he is always right and he is never wrong. And because he has no fault, then your faults always shine bright and clear, right? You forgot to floss this morning. I've flossed every day, <laughs> twice a day, since I had baby teeth. That's what it would be like being married to Mr. Law. He has no faults. Second, the law makes a bad husband because he offers no help. God's good design for marriage is to help one another, but the law, always right, points out your faults and then never lifts a finger to help you through. He tells you, do not steal. And that's it. He does not help you not steal. He just tells you, do not steal. And you can say, can you please help me? And he refuses. And then he corrects your English. 
He is not a good husband. And third, it's a bad situation for us because the law will never die. Paul says the only way we can be released is if someone dies till death do us part, but the law isn't going anywhere. Mr. Law, our husband, is always right. He points out our faults. He does not help us, and he lives forever. The marriage is binding. We can't begin a new relationship because that would be adultery, and that is our miserable, frustrating, discouraging condition. And it's summed up in the end of the chapter in verse 24 when he just yells, wretched man that I am. So what can we do? In verse 4, when we read verse 4, it is one of those magnificent gospel in a nutshell verses that Paul writes. So underline it or mark it in some way. But verse 4 is where Paul flips the scenario on his head, on its head, because he's talking about the husband dying, but we get to verse 4, and it's not the husband dying because the law's not going anywhere. What happens? We die. Right? You remember last week, sin didn't die, we died. And so Paul is using the same uh, tactic kind of in his approach to the law. The law is not going anywhere. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but now we die to the law. So the marriage is now broken. It was death to us part, till death do us part, and we've died. And so that marriage to us, to the law, has been broken. In Romans 10, 4, <clears throat> Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So we die to the law through Jesus. What He did is credited to our account, and He is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And in the English language can have two meanings, and both are applicable here because Jesus did both through His death and resurrection. One meaning of the word end can be termination. So I used to work building log homes, and it was seasonal work. In the end of November, I'd see the 68-year-old foreman coming across the yard, and he would come up to me, and he would say, Brent, I think we're at the end of our rope. And I knew that my job was terminated, that I was done, that I did not have to show up the next day. And so end can mean that a finished, it's finished, it's done. It can also mean kind of not, a, not the, the termination of something, but the goal of something, the purpose. Not the termination, but the intention. So when the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, it's talking about the ultimate purpose. So when Paul says in Romans 10 that Jesus is the end of the law, both of those meanings come into play. Jesus brings an end to the law. He brings its termination. In every way possible, Jesus ends the Mosaic law. On top of that, Jesus is the end of the law in that He perfectly fulfilled it. He never broke it. He kept the law perfectly and completely. And because of that, we who are in Christ have fulfilled it as well. And in going to the cross, He took the full penalty of the law for us. And so now that condemnation of the law is no longer on us because it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. 
And so that's what Paul is pointing us towards when he says that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. You're free. You're free from its condemnation. You're free from its demands on you. Jesus fulfilled it. You're free from the penalty it requires on you because Jesus took that penalty on the cross. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Hallelujah. So we're free from the law. Our husband has died, or we've died through Jesus to the law. But in Paul's picture here, there's no such thing as spiritual singleness. Okay, we're not just kind of left to run through the field free and clear alone. We're free from the law so that we can be joined to Jesus. You have a new husband, Jesus. And if you're, ah, I'm just uncomfortable with this imagery of Jesus and being a husband and Get used to it, okay? Because it's crucial in our understanding of our relationship to Jesus. And marriage, our earthly marriage, isn't uh, the, 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 the substance and it kind of shows us what our union to Christ is like. Our union to Christ is the substance and earthly marriage is just the shadow of that pointing us to our relationship to Jesus. So we have a new husband, Jesus, and this is God's objective all along. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was our guardian or our tutor to lead us to Christ. And so we are now in a love relationship with Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not about rule keeping, it's about Christ loving. The Christian life is not about rule keeping, it's about Christ loving. This person we are joined to is alive. This is no external, cold, lifeless list of commandments. This is a spiritual union to the powerful, glorious, perfect, loving, beautiful, risen Jesus. This is a union to the one in whose presence is the fullness of joy. This is a marriage to the Prince of Peace. This is being joined together with the one who raised from the dead who is full of resurrection power. It's not about rule keeping. It's about Christ loving. We have a new husband. We have a new position now with Jesus. And our new position brings us a new purpose. It says, I'm in Acts 28. There we go. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so our new position brings a new purpose. This is the goal for it all. We are meant to bear fruit for God. In our old relationship to the law, that was impossible. In verse 5, Paul says that because of our sinful passions in us, we only produced fruit unto death. But now, joined to Jesus in our new position, we have a new purpose to bear fruit for God. We are not only saved from God and by God, we are saved for God. We are saved to bear fruit for God, fruits of holiness, of love, in our lives becoming more and more like the one we are joined to. 
So Paul's answer to the charge that setting aside the law will provoke a sinful life holds no water. It's only by setting it aside and being joined to Christ that we do produce fruit. It doesn't lead to sin because we aren't single people who just do whatever we want. We are now married to Christ. So on May 13th, 2006, in the Jacksonville Baptist Church, no part of my life went unaffected when I was married to Karen Wellwood. Every area of my life was affected. From that moment on, I could not simply live however I chose. A single person can make decisions unilaterally, but I can't because my life is now wrapped up and intertwined with someone else. So is there a loss of freedom? Yes, there's a loss of freedom. But there's love and acceptance and intimacy and security. In the same way, a Christian cannot live however they want if they are no longer under the law because they are married to Christ. The Christian life is not about rule-keeping. It's about loving Christ. And that's what Paul is showing us here. We have a new position, new purpose, and we have the new power to see that through. Look at verse 6. He says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So now, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit powerfully working in us to live this out. And Paul's going to unpack that in the next chapter. But Paul's answer to the charge that dismissing the law will produce sinful living is right here. He pours the Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit brings a newness from the inside out. Jeremiah 31 says that God writes the law on our hearts. The will of God does no longer crush us from the outside with its demand for unattainable perfection. The law is now written on our hearts. The law was satisfied in Jesus. Now the will of God rises in our hearts as the Spirit transforms us. And what God wants becomes what we desire. And we can even rise above and beyond the law. John Bunyan, he said, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither legs nor hands. A, a higher call the Spirit brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So what an amazing turn of events. What an amazing mystery to be joined to Jesus. What grace, what freedom it is to read that we belong to Jesus in order to bear fruit. How often we live like we bear fruit in order to belong to Jesus. I just feel like just sitting there for five or ten minutes. We belong to Jesus in order to bear fruit. Don't get it twisted. We don't bear fruit to belong to Jesus. We belong to Him. And out of that we bear fruit. We have a new husband, a new position. Because of that, we have a new purpose and a new power to carry it out. We don't need to be always checking our production to see if we've reached our position. We're with Jesus. 
and now we can produce. The second reason that Paul shows us why the law cannot sanctify us is that the law actually provokes sin. So if you guys want to flip back to the... Yeah, there we go. We'll need 13 as well. So, so verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So he's been talking pretty hard against the law, so he knows that question's going to rise up. Well, then the law is sin, it's bad. And he says, no. And then he gives a longer answer. He always gives a short answer and then a longer answer. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what's the purpose of the law then? Well, first he says the purpose of the law is to define sin. In verse 7, I would have... Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law defines sin for us. We don't get to decide what is sin and what is not sin. God's law defines what sin is. We can't just follow our hearts. Our hearts deceive us. We can't just go with our conscience. It's too subjective and our consciences can be seared. We need an outside standard. We cannot be trusted to chart our own course for what is sin and what is not sin. We need a standard to come from heaven and tell us what sin is, and God's law does that for us. The law not only defines sin, Paul says, I hear the commandment, you shall not covet. Not only do I not covet, but it stirs up a whole bunch more covetousness in my life. The commandment doesn't produce holiness and life. It is used by sin to produce rebellion and death. When the commandment came, he says, sin came alive. So we have this perversity in our hearts where we desire to do something simply because we are forbidden to. And if you have no children, if you have children, you see that a lot more clearly. We have a desire in our hearts to do something simply because we are forbidden Two, the early church father Augustine tells a story of stealing pears as a boy with his buddies, and they steal all the pears that they could carry, and he says that we may have tasted a few, but most of them we just threw to the pigs. And then he says, our pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pears of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. So the law provokes sin. Far from sanctifieth, the law stirs up our rebellion. And so Paul wants to remind us again in verse 12, it isn't the law's fault. The law is holy and righteous and good. 
In verse 13, he tells us the sin in me is the killer. It just uses the good law to do it, which just further shows just how sinful I am. It's like when you're playing Clue and Professor Plum uses the candlestick to murder the party guest in the library, right? There's nothing wrong with the candlestick. Its purpose was to shine the light, light the path, but Professor Plum uses it to kill you. In the same way, the law's purpose, as Paul said in Galatians 3, was our tutor to point us to Christ. The law is the candlestick. It shines the light to Christ, but sin comes, picks it up, and kills you. It's not what the law was for, but sin uses it to bring death. So Paul is saying the law is good. It came down from heaven. It's God's law, but we're so sinful and rebellious that you cannot just add a few rules to make us better. It only makes us worse. We are in terrible need. We need a complete change. We need to be made new. We're so sinful, so corrupt. Rules only stir up more rebellion in us. So, we start to see it clearly. Paul has stated this case. The law cannot sanctify us. The law cannot produce a holy life in us because we are dead to it. Because sin uses it to stir up more sin. But the law is good and it does have a purpose. So for the first 13 verses, Paul is showing us that the law is useful and sinless, but it's useless at killing sin. You cannot just have a list of commandments and that produce in you a holy life. A holy life comes not by being under the law, not by adding some rules and some more rules and some more rules and some more and more and more rules until the point where no one's allowed to dance and no one's allowed to play cards. Rules do not produce a holy life. It's by being joined in love to Jesus under grace, serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then, when we get to verse 14 and on, we see that Paul is now just playing that out. He's dramatizing what it's like to try to fight sin and live a holy life using the law. This section of Scripture, verses 14 to the end, has been the center of many disputes and debates and is a portion of Scripture that many well-respected, spirit-filled scholars and pastors land on various sides and church leaders have differing views on. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on verse 14 that if you don't approach it with humility and fear and trembling, you do not know how to expound Scripture. <laughs> in a very typical Martin Lloyd-Jones way. So let's read it. So we've got that clear in our head, okay? Verses 1 to 13, the law cannot sanctify us. Galatians 3.20, the law cannot justify you. Now, Romans 7, the law cannot sanctify you. Now, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the, do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law but that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the debate over the years has been, is this person who is pictured here, this, this guy who is battling and losing in the fight against sin, is he a Christian or not? Is this a picture of the normal Christian life or not? And so from seeing Paul's theme of the chapter and from what we looked at this morning for what comes after in chapter 8, what we looked at last week in chapter 6, it seems to me most plausible that this is not the normal Christian life. This is not the typical Christian life. And I recognize the difficulties. And I know some of you might say, well, but this is what I've experienced. I've experienced this battle of, of doing what I don't want to do. And, but... Notice what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm having a bad day. He is saying, this is total defeat. This is a man who is of the flesh, who is sold under sin, who ever, never mentions anything of the Spirit's work in his life. This is a man who says he is powerless in the fight against sin. This is a man who doesn't know where his deliverance will come from. He knows God's law. It has convicted him of his sin, but he is seeing its complete ineffectiveness at conquering his sin, and it leads him out to cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes loud and clear and strong, Jesus will deliver you from this body of death. Jesus saves. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What can save us from our bondage to sin being united to Jesus? He's taking us all the way back to verse 4. United to Jesus. Married to Christ. That is how we are saved from the bondage of sin in our lives. It is not by following the rule book of the law. So when we see it, whether this is about a Christian or not is actually not the main point. The main point is just like the rest of the chapter to show us that the law cannot sanctify us. Jesus can. And it doesn't mean that we will be sinless, but it does mean that through Jesus we should sin less. So wherever you stand... Whether you think, boys, I, I just don't see it that way. I think he's a Christian. Wherever you stand, the one thing we cannot do is use this text as justification for our sin and complacency towards change. 
You can't sit and say, well, you know, Paul had his struggles and I have my struggles and here we all sit. Whatever side you land on, do not use the last half of Romans 7 as your escape hatch out of what Joe preached last week from Romans 6. Oh, bondage to sin, and yeah, yeah, and now Romans 7, whoop, I'm gone, I'm out. You are to consider yourself dead to sin. You are not to let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And Romans 7 does not then give you a comfy bed to lie down in your sin. Romans 7 stirs you and awakes you. You've been united with Jesus. You are married to Christ. You now have a new position. You now have a new purpose to bear fruit for God. You are done with the old life. You now have a new life. And now you walk in the newness of the Spirit in that love relationship with Jesus. Romans 7 awakes it. It doesn't give you a bed to lay down in your sin. You belong in order to bear fruit for God. They shall call His name Jesus for He will save the people from their sins. Jesus did not just come to save you from hell. He came to save you from captivity of sin. He came to save you to a holy life. And it does not come by you trying your hardest to keep all the rules. It comes by being joined to Jesus in love. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus can save you from your pride. He can save you from your anger. He can save you from your lust. He can save you from your greed. Jesus can save you from your anxiety. Jesus can save you from the lifeless pursuit of trying to check all the rules. Jesus saves. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in a condemning, rule-keeping marriage to the law. You have died, and your new life is now a love relationship with Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The worship team can come up as we get ready to celebrate communion together. We're celebrating that Jesus is the end of the law for us who believe. He fulfilled it completely. He paid its full penalty on the cross. And now we're free from the law and we're married to Jesus. We celebrate communion. It's pointing us ahead to the marriage supper with the Lamb. And so if you look over there, you walk in this morning, you look over at the table and you thought, oh no, not communion this week. I've had a bad, bad week. I can't take communion this week. I'm not, not good enough to take communion. Guess what? That's going back to the law. You're free from that. When you're justified by Christ, you're free from that thinking. You're, of course you're not good enough to take communion. But you're in Christ. No one's good enough to take communion. You're in Christ. So we died to the law and we're free from its condemnation. Communion isn't for good enough people. It's for people who are married to Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word. We thank You that when we see our sin, when the law convicts us of our sin, and we cry out, wretched man that I am, we thank You that there's an answer to that, and the answer is Jesus. We thank You the answer to who will deliver us from our sin is a firm, solid Jesus. We thank You that it's not keeping rules, it's about a new love relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we just pray this morning that if anyone doesn't know that, that they would experience that this morning. For those of us who have been Christians for a day or a week or 40 years, we pray that once again you'd pour the Father's love into our hearts, that we'd be warmed again to just how amazing it is that we are united with Christ. That there's no condemnation for us now. That Jesus saves us from that worthless pursuit of trying to check all the rules. And He saves us from our sin. And He frees us from the bondage of sin to live a new life. To walk in newness in the Spirit. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.